you, Pastor. And I've already met some of the people I have not been able to meet in the last three and a half months where we've been gone. So if you've been here for three and a half months or, or less, introduce yourself to me because I don't have a clue who you are, okay? But uh, it's good to meet Terry and Chris back there and Raymond out there. Um, just great to meet some of you new people and I'm gonna try to remember your names as best as I can. Lori and I, have, we've, as we've been traveling, we love to visit churches and have a live in-person service. And a lot of times we're in areas like national parks, state parks, campgrounds that don't have good enough cell signal or any cell signal to get a live stream. When we can get it, we get it. When we can't, we'll get it later uh, when we can get signal. But we've gone to a lot of really neat churches, some not so good, um, but <laughs> hey, you know, it is what it is. You do your best to research it, um, but we are so blessed here. No church compares to this one. Amen. We just love it when we're here, the worship, the word. And speaking of the word, uh, we're back in Second Samuel, but Pastor Aaron has just done such an amazing job with the You Can Ask That series. Haven't you loved that? It's just been off the charts. And I love the way he's, he's willing to tackle the tough questions and do it, do it well with the Word of God and staying faithful to the, to the, you know, to the scriptures and also saying the things that are difficult because he's definitely stepping on some toes. But good for you. Praise the Lord. Um, so we're in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16 today. Open your Bible or open your phone to 2 Samuel 16. I've got to give you a little pop quiz. You just do it in your mind, but it's a little name association kind of just to get us into this text that we're going to be studying today. And um, think about what comes to your mind as a character trait or something about the person when I mention a Bible character, uh, such as Thomas. You know, we think about what? Doubt, right? Jezebel, who? Evil, you know, adultery, idolatry. Um, Samson, you know, he was really strong. Judas is infamous for his betrayal of Christ. So we can't think about these names without associating these characteristics. Satan is evil, he's the father of lies. Peter's the one with, the, with his shoe always in his mouth, you know. Um, and, and Simeon, remember Simeon? Simeon, rather? Who, who is Simeon? Well, Simeon's of character we don't really think of that often. His name, or the name Simeon, is 46 times recorded in the scriptures, and um, there's 18 different guys with that name Simeon, but they don't really have a big role in the scriptures, so we don't really pay too much attention to them. But today we're going to learn more about Shimei. He's in today's message. He'll be in chapter 19 when we get there, and he's in, in Second Kings chapter, or 1 Kings chapter 2 as well, if you want to learn more about him. But uh, as we come in today's text, we're going to be picking up where Pastor Aaron left off last time, and David is, quite frankly, experiencing the worst day of his life. Now think about that for you. If I were to ask you, what was the worst day you've ever experienced in your life? You know, you're going back in your mind with a catalog of days, and I would venture to say, this is either his worst day or definitely uh, his top three worst days he's ever experienced in his life. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word has something to say to each one of us. And I ask, Lord, that you would take your word like a scalpel. And Lord, that you would do surgery in our hearts and our lives today. As we study your word, Lord, we're not just studying for information. We're studying to know you better. We want to be inspired by the power of your Holy Spirit, but also, Lord, we desire for you to do surgery, that you would cut off the dross, cut off the areas in our life, Lord, that are not to be there, cut off the things that are of, of darkness, cut off the things uh, that are spoken over our lives, the lies that we've been told, Lord, that you would, would set us free and, Lord, that you would illuminate us in your truth. 
And so we come, Lord, with ears that are open and hearts that are ready to receive from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's rewind a little bit into chapter 15 to kind of get us back into 2 Samuel so we're ready to go in chapter 16. Um, so as we kind of review, what's happened is, remember Absalom is King David's son, and he has led a rebellion to usurp the kingdom from his father. And David decides, rather than having a battle take place in the city of Jerusalem and around the city with the people of God, basically a civil war, he decides to take the high ground, if you will, and he flees from Jerusalem with a, a, an entourage of, of some of his uh, soldiers and his family and his friends, and he is now leaving the city. He's crossed through the brook Crook Kidron. He's going up onto the Mount of Olives and over the crest of the hill and, and beyond. So let's pick it up in 2 Samuel 15, verse 32. And it says, And it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain, so that's right there up on top of the Mount of Olives, uh, where he worshiped God. That is powerful. He's on the run. His son is, as you'll find out soon here, his son is basically coming into Jerusalem with an army of his own almost at the same time, within hours, of David fleeing for his life and the life of his subjects. And he stops and pauses to worship God. Wow. What did that look like? He didn't offer a sacrifice. That would have been done in the temple. How did he worship God? I want to submit to you that I, I believe that he wrote a psalm and taught it to the people with him. And they sang that psalm and they prayed it to God. And it says, And there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do not, uh, and you do not have, and do you not have Zadok and Abathar, the priest, with you there? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell Zadok and Abathar, the priest. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaz and Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them, you will send me everything you hear. So Hashai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came in Jerusalem. Okay, you can see, he's met him on the hill, on the top of the mountain there um, of Olives, and he's going into the city, and Absalom's coming at the same time, and David is cresting the hill and on his way out on the run. And that's where we're coming in verse uh, 16. We see that David is fleeing from Absalom, and it says, when David was a little past the top of the mountain. So you can see the timing here. <laughs> He's on the mountain worshiping God. He's just a little past that. And now we come right here. There's this guy named Ziba. He comes. He's the servant of Mephibosheth. Now, you might remember Mephibosheth. He was spoken about uh, earlier, I think in chapter 9. So we, we did a little teaching on him. If you didn't get that teaching, you want to review that another time. But um, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute. But he is the servant of Ms. Mephibosheth who met him with a couple of saddled don donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raven, raisins, 100 summer fruits, a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these here? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. So Ziba, he was um, the king, king Saul's servant. Okay, we're going back from David, the previous king. The first king of Israel was Saul. And he was a servant of King Saul, and he cared for King Saul's properties, his vineyards and, and different properties that he had, fields and stuff, that King Saul had personally. He cared for them. 
So by inheritance, those, that same land and property was passed by inheritance down to Saul's descendants. Now Saul's sons were killed in battle, you remember. Then he had a grandson, and that grandson was Mephibosheth. And David called for Mephibosheth to come back to Jerusalem uh, after he came to power because he wanted to treat him kindly and do kindness to him. And he, he also told Ziba, you are no longer kind of, this land is not yours, even though you and your sons have taken care of it. You are going to care for it for Mephibosheth on his behalf because Mephibosheth, you might remember, was lame in his two feet. So he couldn't care for the land himself. But Ziba has come, and he's a very crafty guy. He still wants that land. You can tell there's covetous still in his heart. He wants that land, and he comes and he offers this very generous and timely needed gift to David and to those that are with him. But he has devised a plan in order to try to regain the estate of King Saul and take it for his own. Verse 3, then the king said, where is your master's son, meaning Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. So now he gives he basically, by king decree, is saying everything is Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you, you know, that I may find favor in your sight, O oh my lord and king. And he, it's all a ruse. He's made up a lie. We're going to find out in chapter 19. This is an absolute lie. But King David falls for it. The truth was that Mephibosheth, actually, he is in the city of Jerusalem. He stayed because he couldn't go with David, and he would be a, a hindrance to David being a cripple. But he personally takes on affliction of his own self and, and denies himself his own personal needs in a, in a sense of, of just prayer and humbling himself before God and mourning over the situation and what's happened to David because he loves David and he has great sorrow for what's taken place. So Ziba rather told uh, David that Mephibosheth was waiting in Jerusalem and he's wanting to take over the kingdom. He's making up this story that, well, basically, David, after you and Absalom end up fighting each other and killing probably the both of you, then Mephibosheth thinks that he will be king, and this crisis will now be uh, brought to his gain. And Ziba is trying to actually gain himself and profit himself from this crisis as well. Unfortunately, Ziba has no concern of what this lie that he's concocted up about Mephibosheth is doing to the heart of David. David has shown him kindness. He loved the, uh, the descendants of Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was his best friend. And so here's Mephibosheth, and it's brought to him as if he betrayed him. And David, at a weak point, is, is just like an arrow is, is stabbing in his heart. David didn't have the time or the ability to really find out all the facts of the story. And you and I need to take warning from this. We, we need to be careful about making rash decisions when we're at a point of, of great stress or sorrow. When we have those things going on in our lives, we need to be very careful about making important decisions. We don't see David seeking the Lord at this moment for wisdom to, on what to do. And we need to be careful and pause, whether it's a business deal, whether it's a uh, you know, relationship issue, whether it's uh, buying a car or a house, a big purchase, uh, or a job offer. Uh, how is David to know the truth? Well, Proverbs 18:13 says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. And David plays the fool here because he's answering and making a decision without having all of the, the knowledge and all of the, the parts of the puzzle, so to speak. He hasn't really been able to affirm the story he's been told. And, and it's the same thing with us. We need to be careful about making decisions when we don't have all the information. 
So now, now David has crested the, the mountain, so to speak, and he's gone on a little ways, and we're introduced to now Shimei, and uh, he's cursing David. Verse 5. Now, when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gurah, coming from there. And he came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So this, this area of Bahurim is a territory in Benjamin. Now remember, Shimei is a descendant of the house of Saul, and Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is kind of his hometown, his territory, if you will. And how quickly he is to cast stones at King David. We are often quickly, quickly able to cast stones at other people. You remember in John chapter 8, uh, with Jesus. Remember the woman caught in the act of adultery, and of course she was thrown at the feet of Jesus, and they wanted to stone her. And what was Jesus's response? Let him who has no sin, let, let that person go ahead and be the one to cast the first stone. Ironically, the only one that would qualify to cast the first stone would have been Jesus himself, and he chose, obviously, not to. And it grieves me because oftentimes we as Christians can cast stones at one another when we shouldn't at all. And, and one area is when a leader falls. And, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've, you've been around the, the Christian church and around Christendom, and especially in America, and there are leaders that fall. Uh, but this should not be something we gloat over or, or, or criticize. This is something really that should cause our hearts to mourn. We shouldn't be casting stones at these people. We should be brokenhearted that this has happened in the body and to the body of Christ. There's an interesting story that came out uh, when the British and the French were actually fighting Canada back in the 15, uh, I'm sorry, 1750s. So going way back, but it's an interesting story. I decided I wanted to share it. It's about an admiral, his, an Admiral Phipps is his name, and he commanded the British fleet, and he was told when he got to Quebec, Canada, to just anchor his ship and wait there for the army, the British army, to come. And when the army came, he was to help them and reinforce the army by helping them to attack the city. So he was to support their attack. So Phipps' Navy arrived early, and he's there anchored in the harbor. And the admiral waited, and as he was waiting, he became annoyed as he looked into the city of Quebec, and he saw these statues in prominent places around the city on the walls there, and they were there erected to the saints. And he was annoyed with righteous indignation over, over those statues to the saints. And so he commanded his his uh, cannons to shoot those statues down. And so all of a sudden, you know, they're firing cannonballs at the statues. And we don't know how many shots were shot at the statues. We don't know how many shots actually hit the statues of the saints and knocked them down. But what, this is what we do know recorded in history. That when the British troops finally got there to attack the city, the Navy was of no use to the attack. Why? Because they had shot all of their cannonballs at the saints instead of attacking the city with the army. And I wonder if that's what we do sometimes. We, we're so busy shooting at saints that we're not attacking the actual enemy, and we know him as the enemy of our soul, right? We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. So Shimei held resentment over David for replacing King Saul as king over Israel. He thought that David was responsible for the death of, of um, Ishbosheth, remember? King Saul's, one of King Saul's sons. And he thought you were responsible for that death and also for the death of Abner, who was the general under Ishbosheth. Both of them had been murdered, 
but it was completely not a part of David. David had no knowledge of it at the time. He had nothing to do with it. In fact, he was outraged when he found out that these things had taken place. But there were some still in the northern kingdom that felt that even if David didn't do it, he benefited from the death of Ishbosheth. He benefited from the death of Abner, and somehow he must have been involved. And so they still had this vendetta and this grudge against David, and Shimei is one of them. <clears throat> so verse 7, also Shimei said thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. In the Hebrew, it's even worse than the the English translation, and then it says, the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son, so now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Now, most of what he says is untrue, quite frankly. Uh, these things didn't come upon David because of what happened to Saul, these things were coming upon David because of his own disobedience to God. You and I understand that, but he was inferring that all these bad things are happening to you, David, because of what happened to Saul and his house. But David didn't have responsibility to that. But these things were happening, but they were happening because of David's own sin and disobedience to God. Now Shimei is a descendant of King Saul and the Lord had rejected Saul, you remember, he, the Lord rejected him, not David, but the Lord replaced King Saul with David and established David as a king in his place. Notice David's response to Shimei's cursing, verse nine. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. Would this have been right? Well, actually, according to the law in Exodus chapter 22, it was against the law to curse the ruler of your people. We should remember that with our political people as well. <laughs> yeah, we're guilty of that a lot of times. Actually, Ecclesiastes 10 talks about that as well. So it was a violation of the law, and so Abishai was ready to execute judgment because of this cursing. But verse 10, the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zerah? You, so let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? It's interesting what David asks this question. What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerah? David remembers back when he was hiding in the cave with this same kind of, he's a kind of a general or a major, if you would, in David's army, Abishai. And he and Abishai were hiding in the cave, and Abishai wanted to kill King Saul. They had him. He was sleeping. He could be killed just instantly right there, battle over. And David restrained Abishai and said, you cannot do that. You cannot kill the anointed of God. That's back in 1 Samuel chapter 26. And he and Abishai were there uh, when Saul was sleeping. But, and also, Abishai assisted. He didn't actually execute the killing of Abner. Joab did. But Abishai was there, and he was culpable in that killing. And that's in Second uh, Samuel 3. So you'll remember Jesus with his disciples one day was, were going through an area of Samaria. And there was a village in Samaria that rejected Jesus and didn't want to hear his words. The disciples were to go before uh, Jesus and kind of prepare the city that Jesus is coming. He has the word of God to teach you and to, to heal the people and stuff. And they rejected him. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus coming to their village. And remember James and John, they said, oh, Jesus, should we just command fire to come down from heaven and, you know, destroy these villages. And what did Jesus say? He said, no, I didn't come to take life. 
I came to save life. And, and Jesus came to save life, not take it. And David also, he is seeking to save lives. That's why he's fleeing from Jerusalem. He's taking the high ground because he wants to save lives. He's not wanting to take anybody's life. And you notice that David was able to see the hand of God even in the curses of his enemies. So how should you and I respond to criticism? Because we all have been in David's shoes. Maybe not to the degree and intensity of what David's dealing with right now, but we've all been in those shoes where people have maybe not cursed us, but they've lied about us, they've spread lies, they've slandered us, they've spoken negative things and hurtful things to us, they criticized us and hurt us very deeply. All of us have experienced that, haven't we? So how should you and I respond to criticism when it comes? Because it does come. Well, there's three things we can learn about how we can respond to criticism. And we can remember, first of all, that God can use people to tell us where we've made mistakes. You know, God can use anyone, even our children, even our enemies, even people we don't get along with or people we really don't even like, he can use them to tell us about some of the mistakes that, that we perhaps have made. I like Proverbs 12, verse 15, that says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. We often think what we're doing, what we've done, what we said, whatever is going on, uh, certainly we did the right thing. We can't be wrong. That's the way of the fool. We need to be open to correction and to criticism. And that leads us to our second thing to remember. Some criticism can have a measure of truth. When we are, when we are confronted with a major uh, attack of criticism, it is a time for us to pull back and really examine ourselves and say, is, is there a measure of truth here? Could I have done or said something a little differently than the way I handled this? Is there a measure of truth that I need to look at and, and own? Uh, and we find that illustrated in verse 11 that we're gonna read in a minute, where David is saying, look, there's a measure of truth here to this criticism. And number three, when criticism comes, we must honor God in the way that we respond to criticism. And I love what David does. He, he shows us a great example of that in verse 12. So let's read those verses, 11 and 12. It says this, And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, that's Absalom, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone, let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. David sees everything that's happening in his life as instrumental by God's allowing or God's own doing. And so somehow the Lord has allowed this man to bring these curses on to me. Let him go. And then verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will repay me good for his cursing this day. Isn't that scriptural? Yeah. So gain, David has gained insight. He knows that the insults of others is nothing compared to what he really deserves. It's like, this guy's cursing me? Are you kidding me? I deserve so much worse than whatever he wants to do to me or is doing right now to me. That's the least of my, my problems. He's looking at his own mistakes and he realizes he deserves much worse than these curses coming from Shimei. And it's good, good advice to you and I. A lot of times we can, we can get a pity party into thinking we, we're being attacked or we're being maligned and criticized and, and, and we don't deserve it. Well, what about the time we did deserve it, for Pete's sake? It's almost like when your parents, you know, uh, come to you and say, you're lying and you're going, no, I'm not. We really aren't. We really are telling the truth. 
but, but what about the, the, you know, the dozens of times that I lied and, and I said I was tell, telling the truth and I really was lying and I got away with it then. And this time I, I, I don't get away with it, you know. I mean, it's the same thing driving when we're driving down the road and we put on 10,150 miles in the last three and a half months. So we had a lot of driving incidents. Fortunately, no accidents. But we definitely had our share of crazy drivers and crazy things happening on the road. And for the most part, when I'm driving, I, I just kind of laugh that off unless it's really bad. If it is really bad, I kind of toot my horn, just like, eh, didn't like that. But you know, when you're going 65 miles per hour pulling a trailer and somebody cuts literally two or three feet in front of your vehicle, because he wants to get around that truck that's in the left lane or something. It's like you're putting everybody in danger here. But for the most part, you know what? So what? They did something wrong. How many times have I done things wrong? I drive like a jerk sometimes too. Really? And so hey, you do too. It's like I get a kick out of people. It's like I make a mistake and they get all bent out of shape. It's like you never make a mistake driving. You're the perfect one? No, we're all making mistakes. We're doing the best we can. You look out for me, I'll look out for you, you know? Let's, we're all in this together. Nobody wants to get hurt. And it's the same thing here. It's like we, we can get so prideful thinking that we don't deserve what's happening and realize, we should realize rather, that, that we are getting so much less than we deserve usually. So David determined to do the right thing before God and wait on the Lord to reward him. Verse 13, and as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. So whatever happens to this guy Shimei, what happens to him? Well, it's interesting because at the end of David's life, as we're going to kind of coming into, you know, we don't have too many more chapters in 2 Samuel. But as he comes to the end of his life, and there in 1 Kings, uh, David tells his son Solomon right before he dies, he says, look, get rid of Shimei. He's going to be a problem for you. You're a young king. He's nothing but a problem, and he is going to raise up others in his kind of bitterness and rebellion against uh, the kingdom. So watch out for him, get rid of him. And what's interesting is King Saul, uh, Solomon, rather, in his wisdom, devises a very interesting crafty plan on how to get rid of Shimeon and allow Shimeon to bring the judgment upon himself. And you can read that in 1 Kings chapter two. Okay. Absalom and his two counselors. Now we've been with David out in the wilderness. We're shifting scenes here. We're back in the city of Jerusalem. Absalom has come in. He's come in with Ahithophel, who is uh, one of the wisest counselors in David's kingdom, who has rebelled against David in conjunction with Absalom. And he's coming back now into Jerusalem. In verse 15, meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jer Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hashai, the archite, uh, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hashai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hashai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hashai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in your father's presence? So I shall be in your presence. So Hashai is another one of David's trusted counselors as Ahithophel has been as well. But you remember that Hashai is like a double Asian. Remember, he met David. He wanted to go with him when David fled from Jerusalem. David says, look, no, you're, you're going to just slow us down. You go back in, and perhaps 
you will thwart the counsel of Ahithophel with your counsel as well. So uh, he tells Absalom, uh, Hashai tells Absalom, whoever the Lord has as the king, I will serve. Now, I want to reexamine Hashai's words with you. It's amazing the way he crafts his words to Absalom because he doesn't lie, but he doesn't really tell him what he thinks he's hearing. Okay, so let's go back to verse 16. Look at this with me. Um, he says, long live the king, long live the king. What king do you think Hashai is referring to? And what king do you think Absalom in his pride thinks he's referring to? Sure, himself. But he doesn't say what king. He just says, long live the king. And verse 18, look what he says. Whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Well, the Lord had chosen David, and the people had chosen David. And Hushai is saying, look, I'm just serving, and I'm going along with the one the Lord has chosen. And Absalom, in his pride and his ego, thinks, well, certainly he's talking about me. But I believe in Hashiah's heart, he's talking about David, but he doesn't mention him by name. Look at verse 19. Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. And so what he's actually saying is, I'm serving David in your presence. And so he crafts his words very cleverly in a way not to actually lie, but they actually are bringing uh, deception that Absalom is buying because of his own pride. So let's go on in verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give, give counsel as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are, are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God, so was all the advice of Ahithophel both to David and to Absalom. So he is a man of extremely great wisdom. You know, just whoever he's counseling, his counsel is, wow, wisdom. So Ahithophel's advice was that Absalom do something so disgusting, so treacherous, that there would be no possibility of reconciliation between him and his father. And by doing this in front of all Israel, and all Israel would hear of what he's done by taking King David's concubines, which, is it, which the, the ruler of the conquering kingdom would do as a way to say, I have everything that your king possessed. It's all mine. And so it's a disgusting and a very, uh, a very, um, um, it's a very crash display uh, of, of the fact that I have now taken possession of everything the previous king had. And so this would sever any possibility of, of uh, Absalom and David reconciling. Because if Absalom and David reconcile, Ahithophel realizes he is going to be executed as a traitor by David. And so he, his life is on the line here, to, here too. So he wants to do all he can to make this division even greater and to thwart any possibility of reconciliation. Now, Pastor Aaron, last time we were in, when he was teaching in Second Samuel 15, he mentioned Ahithophel is an interesting person. He is the grandfather of Bathsheba. So he is Bathsheba's grandfather. And Ahithophel hated David for what he did to his granddaughter Bathsheba and her husband, his son-in-law Uriah, by murdering him. And so he had an axe to grind against David. So what Absalom did with David's concubines was 
by the counsel of Ahithophel, but what's interesting, it was prophesied by the mouth of, De of God's prophet Nathan that this was God's going to be God's judgment on him way back in chapter 12. So this is an act of treason, treason that Absalom does against his father. Um, but it's a terrible thing that happened, and obviously a terrible thing to happen to these poor women that are caught in the middle of, of all this disgusting um, treachery that's happening. But I find it ironic that what is taking place here is this sexual um, perversion and tragedy on the rooftop of, of the king's palace, David's palace there in Jerusalem, by Absalom. But it's that same rooftop that David was walking along when all of his sin began and he was spying on this woman bathing named Bathsheba. So the same rooftop where lust was conceived in the heart of David is the same rooftop where this lustful uh, act takes place against David and this treason. So as we look at this, we see uh, the fulfillment of John chapter 10, verse 10. Remember Jesus said that he said, the thief comes not but to except to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. And what we see is the thief coming to steal. In the first four verses, Ziba wants to steal that land that was rightfully Mephibosheth's. And then we see the thief coming to kill. We see Shimei, who has a spirit of murder and would love to see David killed because he thinks he's a bloodthirsty man. And then in the last verses here with Absalom, we see the thief coming against David once again, the people of God to destroy. Absalom and Ahithophel want to destroy any possibility of reconciliation, but they also want to destroy the kingdom and destroy David. Very interesting. I want you to notice also, before we leave this text, the many par parallels between King David and Jesus that we see as we're reading through these, last, uh, these chapters here, and particularly chapter 16. King David left Jerusalem, and he crossed over to the Mount of Olives because of his own sins. Jesus left Jerusalem and crossed over that same Mount of Olives to spend the night in prayer and intercession for our sins. King David was betrayed by his own son. Jesus was betrayed by a close disciple. King David was scorned and ridiculed at his most vulnerable moments. Jesus was scorned and ridiculed at his most painful moments. King David fled the wilderness to escape Absalom. Jesus was led into the wilderness to face the devil's temptations. King David, when criticized, held his peace and did not retaliate in anger. Jesus, when criticized, held his peace and asked his Father in heaven to forgive them for their blasphemies. King David trusted God to defend and save him in his distress. Jesus also trusted God to defend and save him in his distress. King David bore the judgment of his sins from the hand of God. Jesus bore the judgment of our sins from the hand of God. King David was never forsaken by Jehovah God. Jesus, however, was smitten and was forsaken by God for us. King David stepped away from his throne and left Jerusalem for the benefit of his subjects. Jesus stepped away from his throne and left heaven for the benefit of his church. King David was betrayed by those he thought were his friends. Jesus was denied by those he called his friends. King David would return to Jerusalem again in God's perfect timing when the enemy was vanquished to reign over God's people as king. And Jesus, he will return to Jerusalem again in God's perfect timing and vanquish the enemy to reign over God's people as king of kings and lord of lords forevermore. There's so many parallels here 
to the two of them. But I want to close today looking at Psalm 3. David wrote several psalms that we have in the book of, of Psalms, and he wrote them often at trial, uh, trial and tumultuous times in his life. And Psalm 3 is a psalm that is exactly identified to the time here that we have read in this chapter. And so let's look at Psalm 3 real quickly here. It says this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. And if I could have the worship team come on up, that would be good. It says in Psalm 3 verse 1, Lord, how are they increased who trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. This psalm, I believe, was written during the very events of what we have read and studied today. This may be the psalm that David worshiped the Lord on the mountain as he was leaving the city. It's attributed to these very events. David was a man after God's own heart. You'll remember that. God searched to and fro looking for a man after his own heart. And he found David to be one who was after his heart, who would do his will. But David's sin was not the measure of God's love or approval toward him. It was his firm trust in the Lord that, that delighted the heart of God. So God didn't look at David and, and sum up his life by his failures. He looked at David and summed up his life by his faith, his trust in the Lord. David's sin, though, brought consequences to the Lord. And there were many friend and foe that David had that felt there is no way that David could ever be forgiven of his sin. I want you to consider something. There is no atonement for the sin of adultery or the sin of murder under the law of God. There is no sin offering to give for adultery or murder. There is only punishment prescribed, and the punishment was death by stoning. That was what was prescribed by the law, but David somehow knew the heart and the character of God. I want to close by looking at verse 2. Look at this with me. It says this, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Now, many of you know the name Jesus. That's Greek for the Hebrew word, Yeshua. When Mary and Jesus' family and his friends called Jesus in Jesus' day, they didn't say Jesus. That's Greek. They used Hebrew, Yeshua. That was his name. Yeshua means salvation is of the Lord, or Jehovah is salvation. Deliverance comes from God. That's what Yeshua means. That's what Jesus means. It's just Greek versus Hebrew. But if we were to translate this verse, verse 2, in the Hebrew, that word help would actually not be what we would say. Some of your Bibles may say salvation or deliverance in place of the word help, but that word help is literally the Hebrew word Yeshua. So let's read that once again. It says, many are they who say of me, there is no Yeshua for him in God. There's no savior for him. He's outside of salvation. There's no deliverer for David. There's no Messiah for him. There's no Yeshua. There's no Jesus for David. 
he's gone too far. And perhaps you are here today and the enemy has come to you and said, you have sinned too greatly. You're gone too far. God can forgive these sins, but he can't forgive that one. There's no Jesus for you in God when it comes to this particular sin in your life. That's the lie of the enemy. David knew, and we need to understand, that there is hope. There is help, there's salvation, there's deliverance for every one of our sins in God. And there is Yeshua, there is Jesus for every sin that we've ever committed. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. I'm going to ask you to put your hand on your heart, not raise your hand, but put your hand upon your heart. If you have been tormented by the thought that, that you've sinned too much, too greatly, too deeply, that God, could you possibly ever, ever forgive my sin? And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Oh, Heavenly Father, my sin is great. And sometimes I don't understand your grace. I can't comprehend your mercy. But I thank you, Lord. There is no sin too great that Jesus does not forgive. Thank you for the blood of Christ who washes away all my sin. Every evil and perverse thing that I've ever done. Even those things that no one knows. You know, Lord, and you forgive. I come to you, Lord, trusting in your mercy, your grace, and in the blood of Christ in who I stand, in Jesus' name.